This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey everyone, it's Major Garrett and welcome to our new podcast. Did you know we have a new feed completely separate from the takeout as well? Please just search Debriefing the Briefing. Click subscribe. And then if you can, and we'd really love this, drop us a rating and or a review. Pretty soon, you'll have to be subscribed to the new feed if you want to hear new episodes of Debriefing the Briefing. Thank you. And now let's start the show. We believe today that we have the capacity in the United States to do a sufficient amount of testing. Although we say there are X number of tests out there, the fact is there have been and still are situations that are correctable and will be corrected and some of which have been corrected. Are you concerned though that people coming out in protest are going to spread uh, COVID? No, these are people expressing their views. They seem to be very responsible people to me. You know, they've been treated a little bit rough. From CBS Audio, this is Debriefing the Briefing. Here's CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent, Major Garrett. Hello from Washington and welcome to Debriefing the Briefing, a summary of the daily White House Coronavirus Task Force briefing. April 17th briefing lasted one hour, 44 minutes. President Trump participated in 52 minutes of that briefing, the 42nd of its kind. By far the biggest headline was the president's assertion, backed up by his medical advisors, that the country currently possesses enough COVID-19 testing capacity for states to begin phase one reopening of their economies. It's worth pointing out what phase one means. You still isolate all vulnerable populations under the federal guidelines. You discourage large public gatherings. Groups of 10 people are to be avoided under any circumstances. Minimal non-essential travel and schools do not reopen. In the workplace, telework under phase one is continued to be encouraged. You return your workforce in phases and there is no, no, are no common areas and also work-related travel, all non-essential work-related travel discouraged. That's what phase one looks like. But it was also conceded during the briefing that the nation is far from capable of reaching the testing capacity so governors and states can contemplate the phase two opening of their economies, much looser than the phase one, phase one federal guidelines. Dr. Anthony Fauci of the National Institutes of Health said there has been a problem with testing capacity. It is being remedied, and the great problem now is getting the supply available to the demand that's needed at the state level. President also said in relationship to China that he is, quote-unquote, not happy with China, not happy about the situation there. By far the strongest words from the president. One other note from the briefing, the U.S. Department of Agriculture will provide 
$19 billion in payments to farmers, ranchers, and those in the dairy industry. This to keep the food supply stable and to compensate farmers, ranchers, and the dairymen for lost sales due to COVID-19. I want to bring into the conversation New York Congressman Max Rose, the 11th District of New York. He has just come off a National Guard deployment in which he was assisting in the placing of a COVID-19 hospital, I believe in Staten Island. Is that correct, Max? Yes, sir. So tell my audience about that experience in particular and help those who are not in New York or the greater New York metropolitan area, give them an idea of what this situation is like, how, how bad it was, and maybe in a small way how things are slightly improving or at least looking more optimistic if they yeah. are. Yeah, so th- thank you for, for having me again. I'm sorry it's under these circumstances. Um, so let me first just say this about what I just did for the last couple of weeks. While it was an incredible privilege to be able to serve again in uniform, uh, that service pales in comparison to the service that I saw. Uh, you know, these frontline medical professionals are just doing unbelievable work each and every day. I was a doctor there at the hospital. He, he had just recently lost a family member to COVID, and another member of his family was in the ICU at that point, right across the street, and he was still doing 18-hour days. You know, nurses who hadn't had the opportunity to hug their children more than a month because they didn't want to get their families sick. And nonetheless, day in and day out, they came in with their head held high. You know, the, the soldiers who I were with, who I was with, they, this was my old unit, um, the Fighting 69th Infantry Regiment, New York City's Infantry Battalion, the United States Army's oldest unit. There's more battle ribbons than any other unit in the military. It's, it leads, it's led the St. Patrick's Day Parade for over 150 years in Manhattan. And we did a final huddle, all, everybody, the entire team, before the, this COVID facility saw its first patient. We stood this hospital up in six days. Unbelievable. And during this huddle, the soldiers wearing their own uniform cheered and applauded the medical professionals wearing theirs, communicating to them that they are the frontline soldiers in this war that we're fighting. And it is a war. Hundreds of people dying each and every day, people with their own story, people with family members. Uh, and so it is impossible to try to communicate what this is like. Um, And I must also say that unlike other crises, this is a crisis that is unfolding often behind the closed doors of hospitals and behind the closed doors of homes as people grieve for their their lost loved ones. We haven't yet even sorted it out yet as a community. But to see what these people are doing within these hospital walls, uh, We've called them, we've just recently started calling them essential employees. Well, they were always essential. They were always essential. They're the reasons why this city runs, the reasons why the state runs. This country is the greatest country in the history of the world because of them. And we can't forget that when all this is mm-hmm. done. And you talk about the grieving. It's worth noting that all of that has to be done in isolation. The funeral parlors I've read in New York, the greater metropolitan area, are overwhelmed. There are no visitations. Everything is multiplying to such a degree. And because of social distancing, you have a proliferation of grief. And all that has to be done in 
some manner or form of either absolute or near absolute isolation. No, no, it's we've never we've never experienced anything like this um, as a society, and in a crisis like this, our we're showing ourselves, we're showing our loved ones, we're showing the world just how resilient we are. Um, Political affiliation doesn't matter. Race, creed, religion. We're uniting as Americans. That's what that's what we have to do right now. But you're 100% right. Outside of the immediate health crisis is the spiritual crisis that people are going through um, as they grieve uh, for their the loss of their loved ones or as they endure unprecedented personal uh, economic crises. So as a member of Congress and someone who is up close living and seeing and dealing with your constituents who are coping and trying to adjust, evaluate, if you would, for my audience, the phases and the phase three plan from the White House about reopening parts of the country. There's a few buckets or a few pillars that we have to consider. Um, But first, let's just evaluate what the problem is. This is an economic crisis that has been catalyzed by a healthcare crisis, by a pandemic. And in that sense, it is the almost polar opposite of the 08 financial crisis, which was catalyzed by economic dysfunction um, in particular sectors. And so if we want to escape out of this economic crisis or at least begin to achieve what would be some new form of normalcy, Previous to a vaccine coming out, we have to figure out how to quell and control this pandemic. So how do we do that? Well, the first thing is, is that we have to build out an infrastructure that can withstand a surge of COVID patients. And that infrastructure has got to be centered around hospitals. We can't attack this problem as if we would attack uh, healthcare relief after a hurricane where you just build simple field hospitals and get prepared to stitch people up. No, these are complicated, long-standing healthcare, personal healthcare crises that require the full apparatus of a highly integrated hospital network. It is intubation. It is um, ICUs. It is oxygen sourcing. It is the ability to rescue a patient as they go into crisis. And so the first thing that we have to do is expand our existing hospitals as much as possible. Second thing that we have to do, which is what we just accomplished here on Staten Island, is build out ancillary hospital facilities that are fully equipped to address COVID patients. Now, the third thing, as we've done at either the Comfort, which is the U.S. Naval Hospital that I called on uh, the president to send to New York Harbor, and thankfully him and Governor Cuomo got the job done, or at Jacob Javits Center, we have brought in new hospital beds, hospital beds to the New York uh, community. The second thing that we have to do is we have to have a massive surge in testing, testing and contact tracing associated with it. That way we can quickly identify new cases. Let's eliminate, Major, the mystery around testing, okay? All the test is is a swab that they put stick up your nose, then they put it in a vial, and they send it off to a lab. And then the lab needs the automated processing equipment as well as the reagents to make that equipment run and get you a result back in 24 hours. That's all this is. So then you say, well, why can't we scale up testing? It is the exact same problem that we're confronting with PPE, which is the free market can't solve this problem. 
There's been an unprecedented surge of global demand for these products, and we need the federal government to step in, the president of the United States, to assert his full authority and make sure that the American market is getting what it needs and that production is scaling up exponentially. And then lastly, we need a a massive, massive infusion, a longstanding infusion of PPE. PPE for our healthcare workers, because if you don't have healthcare workers, I don't care how much how many beds or how much medical equipment you have, and also PPE for our essential workers, our uh, you know the transit officials, our cops, our firemen, our people working at supermarkets, the people we need, they got to be protected. If you have those things, you can slowly, incrementally phase in an opening of the economy with the understanding that we cannot achieve true normalcy again without a vaccine. How far away do you think the greater metro New York area is from getting the things you've just described? And I know that's a big shopping list you've just described. Right. But- so listen, the, the, th- the things that I just described, there's never going to be a moment where we say we got it. Those are our North Stars. Those are the things that each and every day we need to be evaluating amongst, of course, many others, where we are saying, how will we work to continue to improve these three pillars? Um, All the while, we have to have empathy for people who are going through an economic crisis. You know, I, I, I understand the frustration. You say, look, I'm healthy. I didn't do anything wrong. And now you tell me I gotta stay home more? You tell me I can't go back to work? I gotta provide for my family. I followed all the rules, did everything right did everything I was told to do. And now you're telling me I got to stay home. But here's the thing that we cannot forget. And that is, if you look at the history of pandemics, it is the second surge that kicks your ass. It is the second surge that often kills more people than the first. We cannot allow for that to happen. And we can't get caught flat footed if it does. And that's why I'm trying to identify those three pillars that we have to work towards. And yes, states and localities have a role. The president was actually correct to to note that it is states and regional coalitions that should be the ones leading the way and saying, here's how we're going to open up and here's our timeline and so on and so forth. But here's what's missing. Going back to those three pillars again, the federal government has got to lead the way on giving us the resources we need, giving us those resources for testing hospital infrastructure and PPE. You know, it it was the United States of America that sent the man to the moon. United States of America that won the world wars and won the Cold War. Not individual states as unbelievably innovative and miraculous and marvelous as they can be and brilliant as they can be. It's the United States of America, and there are things in this particular crisis that only the United States of America, united, led by a commander-in-chief willing to assert his full authorities and lead, can accomplish. And when the president says, hey, look, this is up to the states as far as testing is concerned. They have the labs. They have the universities. The federal government doesn't need to be, this almost a direct quote from the president, in a parking lot in Walmart 2,000 miles away worrying about tests. How do you evaluate that? Well, look, I fundamentally disagree because, again, this is not a problem. And it's very, it's very similar to the problem of PPE, very similar to the problem of antibody testing. 
Um, the free market alone cannot solve this problem. You have states and municipalities competing against each other and not just against each other. They're competing against Italy. They're competing against France. They're competing against Japan, so on and so forth in a global market for equipment. It is absolutely essential that the federal government and the president asserts the full powers available to him under the Defense Production Act, under so many other threads of legislation that will allow him to do things and the federal government to do things that we have done in the past. You know, you put, put yourself in the shoes of a manufacturer of these this critical lab equipment or a manufacturer of these reagents or a manufacturer of masks. And you say, okay, I see this surge in demand, but in order to meet that surge, I am going to have to build 10 new factories. Now, because I've already ramped up my production to 24 hours a day, but it went in for me to make a profit under those additional fixed costs. I'm going to have to, that surge in demand will have to be maintained for 10 years. And we're all saying a vaccine in 12 to 18 months. So they're not making necessarily that financial decision. It is the federal government that can step in and offer them the financial assistance to do so. It is the federal government at the same time that can step in and be the principal chief purchaser of this equipment, PPE and reagents, so that the competition between states and municipalities isn't jacking up the cost to everyone's personal deficit. Only the only the central government could do that. The federal government could do that. No one else can do that. It's a critical role. Critical. We have to feel a feel, fierce sense of urgency. So I fundamentally disagree with the uh, president's analysis of the situation. Let me talk to you about another thing the federal government is trying to do and for a while was doing with some success, this Paycheck Protection Program. Are you a, a fan of what you've seen so far? And do you support refilling that amount, which at $350 billion has already been used up and the administration wants another $250 billion, but there is a dispute over other things. Congressional Democratic leaders have said, yes, we're all in favor of that, but we want aid for states who are facing massive revenue shortfalls and have to constitutionally balance their budget, and we want more for hospitals. Evaluate that. Yeah, so first of all, the, you know, the PPP is, um, is obviously better than nothing, um, substantially better than nothing, but, um, and it was absolutely urgent that we got that capital out into the system as quickly as possible. So uh, at least some small businesses could keep people on the books. Let's talk about, first of all, ways in which the program needs to be improved. One is that it's clear that uh, as a consequence of the fact that we are using banks as intermediaries to help distribute this capital very quickly, uh, it's obvious that the banks were subsequently uh, prioritizing those clients whom they had pre-existing loan relationships with, um, which has meant that the small business that had potentially never borrowed money or wasn't a lead client of the bank or who was operating with a smaller bank or which was part of an underserved community was not was at a disadvantage. And there are some critical things that we have to do to fix that. But let's look at also the larger debate, which is happening now, uh, Versus, you know, it's PPP alone, just so we all get this straight as to what they're debating, right? PPP alone or that PPP proposal plus hospitals, states, and, and, and states and localities. Only in Washington, D.C. would this be a cataclysmic debate. It is as if they are, the town is allergic to common sense. 
So why am I of the belief that it should be PPP hospitals as well as cities and states? It is because this is a complex crisis and we have got to quickly fund all three of those groups if we want any hope of being successful. Our states and localities are going through a fiscal crisis, a fiscal crisis precipitated by the fact that their spending has skyrocketed to address COVID while their revenue has significantly decreased as a consequence of economic demand plummeted. They need funds. And those, this is not academic, okay? Say you give a state and city more money when it's going through an economic crisis. Those are cops and firemen and teachers and essential workers, as we now call them, who are not being laid off. And if you do lay them off, good luck continuing this fight against COVID. Good luck having the state being a purchaser of PPE. We need states and cities to be solvent in order to win this war. Then you go on to hospitals. You know, I, I just discussed before why hospitals are so important, but why are hospitals going through an economic crisis right now? They're operating at 300% capacity. Well, the reason is, is because now several months ago or so, uh, hospitals turned off their um, elective surgeries, which was the is the principal means by which they generate revenue. These hospitals are offering uh, operating at losses right now, hundreds of millions of dollars, and it is not like a law of nature, like gravity, that the hospitals will remain solvent no matter what. So what? We're not going to give them capital as quickly as possible. We're going to let the hospitals shut down. Good luck fighting COVID. And if you can't fight COVID, good luck getting out of this economic crisis. And then, yes, of course, you have to infuse this PPP program with capital. It needs to be all three. That's common sense. And no one should be trying to, you know, uh, take their ball and leave the game. Okay. We have to get the job done. One last question I want to throw at you. The president has gone back and forth quite publicly this week about what his authorities are or aren't. But yesterday, as he was out rolling out these uh, three phases for reopening economies where counties or states meet the criteria, he told governors on a conference call, you call the shots. And yet, uh, the very next day on Twitter, the president says, liberate Michigan, liberate Minnesota, as if there's something going on there that ought not to go on. Evaluate that for me. Yeah, man, it gives you a little whiplash. Look, I, I don't have time for this petty crap. All right, um, not not when people are dying. Um, so let's get to work. We know what we have to do. We know that we need leadership from the commander in chief. Um, nothing would make me happier than to see this president rise to the challenge and do what we believe is necessary to get done and defeat COVID. And own that. You can own that as a success. God bless you. And to work with governors and mayors, irrespective of their respective political affiliations. Uh, and, and we can unite as Americans to, to beat this thing. Um, this is a virus that does not see race or creed or political affiliation or socioeconomic status or political affiliation. And I, I truly believe we have to unite um, as Americans to, to beat it, just as we have when we face crises in our history. Max Rose, Democratic Congressman, New York's 11th District. Thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. All right, thank you again.
That's Democratic Congressman Max Rose from New York's 11th District. That's all for this episode of CBS Audio's Debriefing the Briefing. Until next time, I'm Major Garrett in Washington. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.